talking about the four worlds. Now, now that we have a good basis of Kabbalistic study, I want to go a step further, a step deeper in our study. I want to talk about different levels. So, let's start tonight with the opening verse in the greatest book ever sold. The bestseller of all time. It's called the Torah. The Bible. It sold about 1,400 times more copies than the bestseller next to it. I don't know. <laughs> but I saw that written in some... In some uh... So the opening verse says like this, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Et ha-shamayim ve-et ha-aretz. The heavens and the earth. Now, the Torah comes from the word hora'ah, which means a lesson. The Torah is supposed to be a practical guide to everyday living. That's why it was given to us human beings. That's why it was given in this world to us. The angels tried to get it. didn't work. What's practical about that? What's practical about in the beginning God created the heaven and earth? So let's Try to analyze it. Bereshit. Bez. The first letter is a bet, not an aleph. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is an aleph. The second letter is a bet. The Torah starts with a bet. So that when you finish the whole thing and you say I've completed it, someone can say to you, you didn't even do aleph. You didn't even start from one. It's a good joke. It's a, joke. <laughs> it's a, very, it's a very Torah joke. I'll tell you something interesting. Um, I'll tell you something interesting. But is it because the bet is this only forward movement? Because um, it's open, only, it's, it's closed on all the sides except for uh, except for Yeah, feature. you can see that there's a lot there. You know about you know these two words, emet and sheker, truth and falsehood. What do you see? Can you see it over there? Can you see? Can everyone see? What do you see immediately about the word emet? First, there's the middle and the. Last. The first word. Well, first of all, it's the first letter of the alphabet. It's the middle letter and the last letter of the alphabet. That's number one. Every single letter stands on two feet. You see that? Every letter is firmly placed on the ground. You can't move it from one side to the other. Both, it has two feet. Every letter has two feet. Now, the next word I want to talk about is sheker. 
Falsehood. Look at that. Not firmly placed in the ground. Not the beginning, the middle, and the end. Just kind of one little spot. Actually, they go at Kuf, Reh, Shin. You know what? This is, they're in order. The three letters, one after another. Kuf, Reh, Shin are in order. So, let's go, that's just the basic. This is going to go a step further. Let's go to numerology. Aleph is? One. one. Mem is? Forty. Tough is? Four hundred. See anything? Hold on a second. Shin is three hundred. Kuf is one hundred. Reish is? Two hundred. Huh? One. Kuf, Reish, Shin, Tough. Yes, it's two hundred. Two hundred. Right? So Emmet turns out to be 441. 441. And Sheker turns out to be 600. What's 4 plus 4 plus 1? 9. 9. We're going to talk about this a different time. I'm going to talk about the difference between those two numbers. They're upside down. Yeah, there's a lot of, you can go on and on. And if you see, this is the basis of one, this is double, multiple, everything, you'll find everything in truth is in waves of three. Man, woman, God. Everything in truth is going to be in forms of three. So, Bez Reshit, two creations. That's the first, led, the first word of the Torah. Bez Reshit, two created. God created man and woman as an example. And many other duplicities in creation. Next. Bara. Bara is revelation. Elohim is restriction. It's not in your book. Okay. It's bonus material. This is bonus material. So, at, um, in God, the way God, the way that the Torah uses God's name is, um, represents different attributes. We learned about the Sefirot. So, the most common two names that the, the, the Bible uses, or the prayers use, are the Yud, the He, the Vav, the He, which is called the Tetragrammaton. And then... There is Elohim. If you, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm writing it in Hebrew, right? <laughs> you understand exactly, right? Okay, so anyway, the Tetragrammaton, Yudke, Vavke, refers to Chesed, refers to kindness, and Elohim refers to severity. So they're the opposites, they're opposites way. This is God's form of kindness, this is God's form of severity. I'll tell you something really interesting as well. Just to, while we're on the idea of numerology, just because I'm trying to expand your minds here because tonight is going to be an interesting night. Um, I'll show you the difference between men and women in here. So, Ish. This is man, Ish. Woman is Isha. Have I shown you this before? There are two letters in here that are the same, and two letters that are different. So tell me, what is the same 
Here. The Aleph and the Shin. Aleph and Shin spell Esh, which means fire. The difference, the difference is that here is the Yud and the He. Right? The Yud represents Chachma, the point, the dot, which is masculine, and the He represents Bina. Now, what is a He really? What is a He really? A He is really, if you go a little further out of the Yud, and a little further down, and you add a little line, it's the expansion, it's the Bina, it's the expansion of the Chachma. That's what the He is. That's God's name. Chachma Bina. <laughs> no, it is. It's wild. <laughs> now, also you'll see man and woman. When there's no God, which means when they are together without God, it's fire. Put God in the story. You have man and woman. The Yod and the He. Yeah. One yeah. question. Yod He, it's Chokhmah Bina. Yes. But the name is Yod He, Bab He. We'll talk about that a different time. But I'm just, I'm just giving you a little taster. Yeah, but yeah, there is a completion to it, and the Vav He itself represents Teferet, is the balance of the Yod He, and it's a beautiful form of how it kind of, it's a, it's a form of expression. But I'm just trying to give you an idea that every word, everything you're going to find in Judaism is completely interconnected. That's just one level deeper than, than, than the basic level. There's still many more levels to go. So now, I want to go back. So, bara, bara is the revealed, bara, created, revealed, Elohim is restricted. And that is why this world is always on opposites. Light and dark, good and bad, happy and sad. It's always on opposites because... Right away, the first verse, God says, I'm creating Bereshit in the beginning. Bara Elohim. God created, I'm creating a world of opposites, of restriction and revelation. And that's going to be what this world is going to be made up of. Now, we continue the rest of the verse. Es HaShamayim Ve'et Ha'aretz. What is, it literally means heaven and earth, but that does not mean heaven and earth. Every word, every letter in the Torah is perfect. Is et. What does et mean? Et is in reference in Hebrew to in addition to. What is et as well? The first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's completed. So what is the message when God says et hashemayim ve et haaretz? What's the message here? That's the whole of everything? The whole of everything. The earth and its addition, the heaven and its addition. God created everything. Not just Shamayim Va'aretz. It could have very easily said Shamayim Va'aretz, heaven and earth. It didn't say heaven and earth. It says everything. Et, everything, twice. 
Why? In reference to everything in heaven and everything on earth. They were both necessary. In contrast of the Eta Shemayim which would be fine in Hebrew. Right, or Shemayim Va'aretz would be fine in Hebrew. But there's a a reference here to Et, everything. Mm -hmm. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. Now, but is it that he, re- but could it also be read that, that he revealed everything? Of course. Reshit, revelation, bara. Of course, but revealed and concealed. That's the heaven and earth, the opposites. Once again, again, we have two opposites in the same exact verse. Now, I want something practical in my life. I look at this and I say, that's wonderful, and it's great. And I'm like, wow, this is great stuff. But isn't this supposed to be a lesson for everyday life? You know how you capture an audience in the first line of your book? Everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. The cover is important, but then when they finally you get them into the book, you've got to capture them in the first line. This is the best first line God could think up? <laughs> really? I could think up good lines. And I'm not even God. This is it? So, let's understand the next, a little deeper. We're going to go and look into the foremost commentator of the Torah. His name is Rashi. Reb Shlomo Yitzchaki. He lived, uh, he lived in France at the beginning of the 11th century. And he wrote a commentary that was supposed to be understood by a five-year-old. Good luck. But maybe a five-year-old of that time. Today... We are sitting on the heads of giants. Yes, yes, exactly, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. So this is what Rashi says. Rashi says, what is this really saying? He says that when the nations of the world complain that we're stealing it, in reference to the land. We're stealing the land. That the et hashemayim, the et aretz means that God created everything, God owns it, and God chooses who he wants to give it to. It's apropos. I've got a problem with this. I'm sorry, I, I really don't think And nothing against Rashi. I'm just questioning it. As a good student of Torah needs to do. Question it. The opening statement of the Torah is to refute an (laughs) anti-Semite? This is the whole story? The Rebbe takes it a step further. Level three. He says, it's not his question. It's my question. He says, what gives me the right to this land? We're not refuting the anti-Semite. We're refuting ourselves, our psyche, our soul, the power within us. 
What gives me the right to this land? And we start giving ourselves explanations like the Holocaust and we need a place and it's been, it was given to Abraham 3,000 years ago and that's why it's our land. Is that enough of a reason? Is the Holocaust enough of a reason for Jewish survival? When you tell a young Jew today, marry a Jew, and you say to them, marry a Jew because 60 years ago your grandmother lived and died for her Jewishness and now you must marry a Jew. I don't think that's enough of an argument. I think it's a very shallow argument for the future of Jewish survival and the future of the Jewish people. I saw a documentary recently called Out of Faith, and it documents five years of this Holocaust survivor, grandmother, and all of her grandchildren marrying out of the faith. And how each time, (coughs) through the process of this documentary, each time she is beside herself and she's saying things like what Hitler did to me and these things and I can't believe that my grandchild would do this and how can they do this and how could they, 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 they destroy the Jewish people and she's going on and on and on and she disowns one by one all of her grandchildren for marrying out of the faith. It's a fascinating documentary. You'll have to see it yourself. I'm not going to finish. I'm not going to tell you the conclusion of it. I'll tell you the conclusion of it. It's called Out of Faith. Her youngest granddaughter is the apple of her eye. It's clear from the beginning of the film that they're very close. She has a special connection with her. And she then, at the, end of the, at the end of the film, she also marries out. And the woman, the survivor, comes to terms with her choices in life. Because she says a piece that we don't know. She said, I chose after the war, to hide my Judaism from my children instead of teaching them and educating them to be a Jew. And today, I'm paying a price for the choices that I made. But I think the question is deeper. Level four. I want to go to a deeper level of this question. The question is that any time the Torah refers to the nations of the world, it says, the nations of the world. In essence, saying people who are native to this world. This is their native world. There are people who are native to this world. And there are people who are not native to this world. There are people who come into this world, the world of falsehood, with a specific, very particular mission, and their mission to accomplish in this world during the span of 80, 90, or 100 years, and then they go back. 
So the question is, what gives you the right to this land? What gives you the right to this world? This is not your world. This is someone else's world. You don't own your body. You have no right to decide whether you're going to be buried or cremated. It's not yours. God gives you your body on loan for the duration of time and expects, as anyone would expect something that they give to someone else on loan, expects his loan to be brought back in the best condition possible. <laughs> Brand new. Yes, but when the car company leases you a car, they say you make the choices too. And if you get into an accident, you got to fix it yeah. or pay the price. Yeah, yeah but you, you can't fix it. You can't fix aging. Oh, yes, you can. Wow. Yes, you can. What's the secret? We're not physical, we're spiritual. Our bodies are loaned to us. But our souls are us. You can't take that away from us. Our souls are not loaned to us. Our souls are not loaned to us. We are our souls. Mm -hmm. But during our, the period of time that we live in this world, we use our bodies through which we see. Our eyes, we don't see through our eyes. The proof is, if you ever speak to someone who has an out-of-body experience, they're going to tell you the first thing. I saw everything so clear. I could hear it. What, what do you mean? Were you in your body or out of your body? What do you mean you could see everything? You were having an out-of-body experience. You couldn't see anything. Yes, you can. Because our soul sees perfectly. We just use our eyes as the vehicles through which we see during our time in this world. So the question is, if we're heavenly, why do we need real estate? If we're really spiritual, why are we involved in the world at all? We're holy. We're spiritual. We shouldn't be involved in the world. This world, as Chanoch said, he walked with God, this Chanoch. He said, this world, this world is futile. Leave it. Let's go meditate. This verse, Bereshit bara Elokim, et Hashemayim be'et Aretz, tells us something fascinating. It tells us that God created heaven, and God created earth. That heaven was a creation just as earth was a creation. They were both creations separate from God. So often we associate heaven with God. But heaven is not godly the same way earth is not godly. God is primordial. God is the ultimate. Whatever God creates is godly. Whatever God creates is godly. Divine light reveals godliness the way the light of the bulb reveals the bulb. We don't see God in our world 
because we are layered. This world is layered. Kind of like an onion. If God is the middle of the onion and all the the layers of the onion, God hid himself from this world to the point, to the greatest point, to the point where we, created by God, can deny God's existence. Imagine that. Imagine that for a moment. I gave this example in, I think, the first class. Imagine you make a table and you, you fashion the, the, the legs of the table and you create intricate designs in these legs and then you really work on that, the tabletop and you varnish it and you sand it and you really work through it. And you finally look at this table and you say, aha, three months later, my masterpiece is complete. And then the table starts walking away. Bye. Where are you going? I just made you. Oh, you didn't make me. You don't even exist. <laughs> that, is what, that is what we do. That is what God did. God created a being that can deny his existence. Like the table can say, you didn't make me. Yeah, but the table can see the creator. We can't. True. It's very easy to deny something. How do you know the table can see the creator? Well, I spoke to him. I mean, it's a dialogue. <laughs> you're saying it's a dialogue. Interesting. Okay. Now, there are endless, there are endless worlds. But tonight, what we're going to do, and what Kabbalah does, is divide the worlds into four. To make it a little easier for us to kind of understand. But really, you should know there are endless worlds. And it doesn't end. So we're going to talk about four worlds. World number one is called Atzilut. World number two is called... Anyone have it there? Berea. World number three? Yitzira. Yitzira. And world number four? These are the four worlds. We're going to go into your books. Page 43. Imagine. Imagine a couple has an idea that they want to build the ideal house for themselves and their family. The idea struck them totally out of the blue. And in a flash, they had a picture in their minds of the state of art home with gardens, with a pool. Relishing such an idea, the couple sat down and worked out the entire structure in their mind by visualizing each bedroom, dining room, kitchen, garage, etc., in the mind, the initial idea had been developed in breadth and depth. After such a beautiful dream, 
they could easily delete the entire image from their mind. However, to carry the idea further, they have to get emotionally excited about the idea. The couple has to then call an architect and a builder and start putting the initial idea on paper. Once the plans have been drawn up, our couple has to go into the financing project, sorry, has to go into the practicalities of buying a plot of land, applying for building permission, financing the project, and the actual building of the house. Only after months of work will the house be finished and our couple can then enjoy the fulfillment of their dream. Now, we can create four stages in this process. Number one would be the initial flash of inspiration, the concept. Number two is the broadening of the concept, developing the concept in detail. Number three, the emotional involvement and the drawing of the actual plans. And number four, the building, the practicalities. Now, Kabbalah explains these stages, these four stages, were also used in the creation of the world. The first level. Now remember, there is God above all of these. God is not pure in any one of these levels. God is primordial. God is before creation. The moment we got to Bereshit, the moment we got to the idea of creation, that's why it doesn't say at the beginning. It says bet, in the beginning. Because now that we enter this state of creativeness, of creation, of creating, at this point, there's automatically a little less of God. Let's say I want to create something. We mean Bereshit? Yes. Okay, Bereshit. That's right. Okay. So, but that's all, that could also be at the beginning, too. So the Be could Ba or Be? It's in. It's in. Properly. Be, be would be in. Would, would be in. Inside. The beginning is God, the infinite. That's right. So that's why it starts. That's what has to be. Has to be, we're making a stop. We're, we're making a, an exclamation mark almost, saying, okay, here is where the beginning starts. You know the proof is? Let's go the opposite way. What happened before Bereshit? Tell me. It's Aleph. Well, how would you say in the No, how would you say at the beginning with, the same, with, with Reshit? How would you say that? Uh, how would you say at the beginning? Uh, al, al, al Reshit, maybe? No, on the beginning. Uh, at, at the beginning would be ba. I think ba. Ba. It would be ba. Ba. Because ba. ba is still the right. same. It would look right, but it would be a different a different vowel. So. Huh? I said the Torah doesn't have. It does have vowels. It does have vowels. In the original copy, somewhere. No, because it was. It's obvious. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be proper. I mean, if you, if you study Torah, it does have vowels. The vowels just help the student. Mm -hmm. But the Torah, we know how to pronounce the words. It's amazing. If you, and once you get into the etymology of the words, you realize that the, the words are, don't need vowels. You, you know, people who read the Torah don't need the vowels to read it. The vowels are just to aid the student mm -hmm. to understand the nature of the, the words because there are no vowels in, in in, in Hebrew, really. You know why there are no vowels? Why? Think about what a vowel does. It makes it articulate. It, it, it fixates it. It fixates it. 
it, it creates a, it creates the box. It creates a box. Yes. It creates the box. And the Torah can be translated how many ways? How many explanations did we give on the same word? Mm. Just tonight? Mm -hmm. We cannot, we don't put, that's one of the problems without getting into detail about the Bible code. When Michael Drasnin created that computer program that, that, that created that Bible code back in the 70s, one of the things he did was he used the code in vertical and horizontal lines. Well, any scholar of Bible would have a problem with that because you cannot make a, a, a page of Torah. It's done, if he would have, what was all, the Bible code was not, was always every other letter, every third letter, every, every third letter, even every 500th letter. That's fine because it only goes as if literally the Torah was one line. Mm -hmm. You can't create a page of Torah because that would be limiting the Torah. And yes, I'm sure you know, there are, uh, there are 306,805 letters in the Torah. And I'm sure if you go 800 and, do 306, 805 to the power of 26 and see what your numbers are, I'm sure you're going to get every possible letter combination that you can in there. So one of the in, in, in one of my uh, in one of my arguments with him, I sent I took the computer program then. Remember it was a three three point one inch floppy over there? And uh, I stuck it in and I made some kind of thing using his name and it came up. I found the place where it was. I sent I sent it to him and I said you can really say anything. Because every letter combination will be there. So you, we don't want to put a, a hold on it. Interpretations are just interpretations. We're not changing the text. You may disagree with the way I just interpreted the text, mm -hmm. but I didn't change the word. Right. But I, I don't see so much flexibility in how we interpret text. We usually refer to pre-interpretations, and then we say this is what Rashi said. And, and well, that's only Rashi. Right. How many, how many biblical commentators are there? There's thousands, maybe millions at this point, of biblical commentators. Mm -hmm. And each one will have a different explanation of the same exact word. Ongoing? Now Ongoing. Still people writing stuff all the time. I myself have written a few things on, uh, on, on the Torah. Mm. I'm not saying it may be good or bad, but... but Is it, would it be accepted? Is it well? Yeah, for sure. Of course. Mm -hmm. it's, I studied it, and this was my interpretation. Okay. And I think there are people all the time that are writing. Right? That's, that's the beauty of the Torah, is that we don't change the original source. But we can expand, and boy, can we expand. <laughs> Think about it. The, every book on Judaica, every book that has, that has the Judaica name on it, comes from the Bible. That book is sourced out of the Bible. There are, how many books are there in the world that are Jewish in content? The millions? They're all from the Torah. Based, some of them are, have, have less of the source in it, and some of them have more of the source in it. If you look at the Talmud... Every single page of Talmud is sourced from the Torah. That's all commentary on the Torah. So, page 44 on the top. The first level of conceptualization is the initial stage which the sefirot, we know this word already, become manifest. This level is called the world of Atzilut. The, world of Atzilut, the word Atzilut comes from the Hebrew word Eitzel, which means next to or emanated from. This world is the next stage after the Simpson or the Orain Suf. We said the Orain Suf, the Orain Suf is God, right? This is how we refer. We refer to God as unlimited. 
we don't know any other way to explain God besides unlimited because everything we know is limited. For Aesop, it's like light, no limitations? Or what is so, Aronsof means infinite light. Once the possibility for finite creation had been made possible through tzimtzum, it was then possible to delineate different features or attributes of God. Again, we're not saying that God, there's no plurality in, 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 our, in our understanding of God. It's just different features in the same God. We understand. I don't have to explain tzimtzum, right? I'm, I'm skipping these words, hoping that you understand what I'm saying. The Torah uses different Hebrew names for God. They are, in fact, names that describe the different sefirot. For example, the name Kel, or El, describes godliness as manifest in the sefirah of chesed, of kindness. Elohim describes God as manifest in the opposite of kindness, in the sefirah of gevurah, of, of severity. The, word, the world of Atzilut is still within the realm of the infinite, and each of the sefirot in that world of Atzilut is infinite. Now, each and every of the, of the ten sefirot are going to be in each and every one of the worlds. They all manifest differently in each world, but they are all in each of the worlds. Though the novelty of the world of Atzilut is the delineation between the attributes. Each one becomes identifiable in its own right, where when it's God's infinite light, it's just all blah, it's one big mishmash. All of a sudden, once creation happened, things started becoming delineated, things started becoming a little more apparent. Kind of like, if you look at the fetus, it starts off as a little, as a little grain of rice. And then eventually, over the course of a number of months, things start becoming more and more apparent. There's a creation happening there. There's a form, an act of creation. So that's what Atsilo did. It kind of was that first step of creation. <clears throat> Previously, although the possibility for their creation existed, it was totally obscured by the Ar Sof, by the infinite light, God. In the world of Atsilot, that can be felt is the divine. Yet, there's no independent existence. We were talking about the Tetragrammaton before. Each of the four stages of creation corresponds to one of the four letters of the yud k vav k of the Tetragrammaton. What do you think Atsilot is? The Yud, the essence, the spark. So that's the beginning of creation. The Yud, here, the Yud, just so you can see, and you're going you're gonna to understand how that works soon. But you'll see that the Yud, that little bit of inspiration, that's everything has to begin with a spark. Everything has a spark in the beginning. This letter of Yud is shaped to form the dot and is the smallest letter from which all the other letters are conceived. It's the quintessential point from which all further existence can develop. The Yud also corresponds to Chachma. Why, why do we say the Yud is Chachma? What, is the, what does Chachma mean? What's the definition of Chachma? It's the inspiration. Spark. Spark. The inspiration. What do we define it as? Conception. It's conception. 
although all ten sefirot are present in every world, one sefirah or group of sefirot is predominant in each stage. The dominant sefirah of the world of Atzilut is Chachma, is, 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 is that, that, that spark, that dot. And Keter, right? Huh? And Keter. We're not going to, because in our, what we decided, and I, 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 I'll talk about this in one of the further classes, but when you do the sefirot, you either, tr- you either do Keter or Dot. And we, in this class, decided we're going to do Dot instead of Keter. Because we believe that everything's got to be in this world. And whereas everything above this world, we're not going to get into uh, in this form. But you have to decide. There's only 10 sefirot. If you use Keter and Dot, there's 11. Mm. So we, and a lot of, I, you, you'll see a lot of your chakra charts and things will use Keter and not Dot. Whereas we've made a conscious choice to use Dot. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So now I want to, huh? That's cool. Did I lose anybody here? Did I lose you? I see a bunch of blanks, blank faces tonight. I'm trying to go on to the next level. If I'm going too fast, too much for you, tell me. Okay, fine. I'm giving you a little too much, uh, <laughs> too much to handle at once. Good. Just, just let me know. Now. In creation, in creation, every created thing, person, life force, has a spark of God within it. There is God in a stone. God used what to create the world? Speech. Thank you. Speech. God used words to create the world. So what is stone in Hebrew? Even. That is the spiritual makeup of a stone. If you were a mystic and you could see through the stone, you would see its words. Kind of like if you were a computer programmer. And I know you see a very nice graphic on your screen, but really that graphic does not exist. It's a bunch of pixels that are made up of of words. The HTML in your website doesn't, your website doesn't exist in real life. It's just if you go to the source and you look at the HTML code, it's all words. The internet, computers, technology helps us understand God a little more because that is how God created the world, just like that with different symbols and words. And every single thing in this world has a source in the words. And that's why the Hebrew word for every item is so important. Because that's the spiritual source. That is why your Hebrew name is so important. Because it's your spiritual source. And using it every time it's said, every time you say that name, every time someone calls you that name, it gives you spiritual joy. It gives you a spiritual excitement. This week, Shabbat here, an amazing thing happened. 
and I was just, I, I haven't, I, I can't stop thinking about stewards we had of our mitzvah, and I don't want to go into all of the incredible day that we had um, at this bar mitzvah. But uh, there was a woman that was here, and I wanted to make a prayer for her at the Torah. And I asked her, she was the grandmother of the bar mitzvah boy, and I asked her, what's your Hebrew name? And she said her Hebrew name, which at first she thought about it and finally came out. And what I didn't know is that she has not used that name in many, many years. And you, there was a certain, it was hard to describe it, there was a certain joy, like almost in a, a, a light that was emanating at that moment, saying that Hebrew name. That name is our source. That name is our essence. That name is our life. Just like the rock is called Evan. We also have a name, and that's our spiritual makeup. And if you look at the letters of your name, there's mystical meaning behind every single letter and the, the, the connection of those letters. So if one thing comes out of tonight's class, I urge you to find out what, what your name is and find out what the meaning of that name is and find out what the mystical understanding of that name is. Wikipedia. <laughs> so, what does uh, the Hebrew name do? Does it give it to our births? It uh, depends. Some people have births sometimes at the circumcision, at the Brit. But and it's other than your actual name? No, uh, most people, I mean, a lot of people use it. I use it as my, as my actual name. Uh, my Hebrew name is Israel. It's in, the West, in the West, like, we're usually given two names. Right. Like, uh, common name and... In the shtetl, they gave them three names. They used to give them a, a Yiddish name, a Ger, a, like a German or a, a Polish name, and, and a Hebrew name. Most, and even today, I've, I've heard, here in Montreal, I was at a baby naming, and somebody gave the child three names. And they said that that, that was the way their grandmother had done it, so they were doing the same. Um, so, when we use a name in Kabbalah, and we become so accustomed to certain names. Like, let's say a name like royalty. What's the Kabbalistic name of royalty? You mean like a king or something? Or David? So we use, let's say, a metaphor, right? Very often Kabbalah will use the metaphor of royalty, of a king. So you think that that metaphor is just... A nice story, okay. It says that God is a king, and we have kings in this world. Okay, we can figure it out. This makes sense. This is a metaphor. It's not like that. The metaphors are an exact understanding. Human royalty comes from God's royalty. We understand God's royalty by understanding human royalty. Oh, we don't have any kings left in the world that are worth royalty? Let's go to the, to the next form of life, to the jungle. The king of the jungle. We understand the lion. We understand what that means. We've all seen the lion king. The king of the jungle. 
By understanding the lion, we understand God. That idea of royalty. So it's not just a word that we use in connection with God. It's actually a way, the metaphor. Any metaphor that Kabbalah uses is a metaphor that has to, that allows us in our limited, in our Bereshit minds, in our limited minds to understand God's world. Now, creation, going from level to level, creation, going from world to world, became this downward spiral. My question is, why does God want to go down? Why is there always a downward spiral? Well, where else is it going to go from him? Yeah. That's, that's a good yes. answer. He has desire. But why? He's bored. Desire to experience. To, uh, it's uh, this German movie, Wim uh, Wenders, about the, way the, uh, the angel want to come to earth to experience desire. Mm. He cannot create anything that's higher than himself. It's always below Let's talk about evolution for a second. <laughs> I don't think it should be called evolution. I think it should be called de-evolution. Because it's not, we're not going up. We're not evolving. We're going down. We're devolving. We're going back. Well, I'll tell you why. Because mm -hmm. it used to be that no one survived. No one was surviving. They just were being. They were being and becoming. No one was surviving. The survival of the fittest didn't take place. When, when, when Originally, Adam. Gan Eden. Gan Eden. Yeah. No, no one had to survive. But all of a sudden, something happened. We're now, in our world, we live in this world where we have to survive. But aren't we returning to, to, to that place of Gan Eden? Yes and no. And this is where depends I want to get to. This is what I want to get to. If you have heaven, why do you need earth? If God created, we established today that God created heaven. If God created heaven, why did God need to create earth? Heaven is also a creation. Heaven is the essence Atzilut. What more? God wanted a dwelling place in the lower realms. God created Bereshit. Boom! We have Atzilut. The essence of everything. The Yud. Let's not pass that. We don't need anything more than that. Why create the earth? You need the opposite to grow. Because, and the question Kabbalah really asks it in is not is creating earth, but rather, why does a soul have to come down to earth? Because we need to have a descent in order to have an ascent. 
We need to go down in order to go up. It's the opposite of what the world says, right? Everything that goes up must go down. Mm-hmm. In Kabbalah, we say the exact opposite. Everything that, that, that goes down must go up. What do you mean? That's right. There was night and there was day. Exactly. Everything that goes down has to go up. But what's amazing, and this is what I want to teach you for life tonight. What's amazing is that once it goes down, once we bend our knees, we can jump so much higher. That when it goes down, it gets refined to a point where it's better than it was before it started. That's why it goes down. Our purpose in this world is to become better than when we started. Our soul was only the greatest it could be before it came down to this world. It came down to this world to us. And the choices we make and the things we do and the people we, we experience and the places we go, this creates this story, this narrative, creates something so much more powerful than our soul ever understood. And that is why we came into this world. That's why God wanted us in this world. Because through this descent, our ascent will be that much greater. And that's why our purpose in this world is to become better, is to become refined. And when we have those down days, good! Embrace it. I learned this morning about embracing. It's painful, good. It means there's healing. It means it's working. It's hard, it's difficult. Someone conditioned us somewhere along the line between 1958 and 1964. Someone said to the world, everything must be easy. Discomfort is bad. Make sure you go to a drugstore today. First of all, there's drugstores today. You go to a drugstore and you have aisles and aisles full of things to make your life easy. Pharmaceuticals. Tylenol is not necessary. But we can't survive without it. I was in a... I was, I was in a, a, a natural food store in the city. I'm not going to say which one. And... Uh, and there was a little Chinese lady there. Um, and so I said, I was, there, I was looking for homeopathic things because I've been studying these books of homeopathy. I'm really interested in it. And I was saying, so, so, what, uh, so what do you take for this? And she was telling me, hey, what do you take for this? And what do you take for that? And what do you take for that? So I'm like, what do you take for a headache? She's like, I take Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> so... We have these places that we go to find things to make our life easy. Nobody said that our life was supposed to be easy. The pain, the difficulty. But once I, what, what I will tell you is this. When you go down and then you come up, the up is so much greater. I'm sure we've all had times in our lives, maybe even now, 
that we experience that. The greatest moments have always been precursored by some of the darkest moments. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. That is the way God wanted this world. That is our psyche. That is our spiritual makeup. The darkness comes before the dawn. There's a great comic that I saw uh, on Facebook. It shows these two um, gold rush guys. And when you, they, you see them, you see a comic, first you see them both chiseling away at the, at the mine. And you see the next comic, one of them is chiseling away, and the gold is right on the other side, and the other one turned around already. If you just realize, chisel away a little more, the gold is right on the other side. And sometimes, it's kind of like the Passover Seder. You know, somebody doesn't know what a Passover Seder is, it comes for the first time, and we're talking, and we're reading, and then finally we get a little piece of parsley. <laughs> and we're like, this is the appetizer, I'm sorry. <laughs> And we dip it in salt water, and then we drink a little more, and then we bring out the bread, and we break it, and we put it away, and then we start reading, and we read, and we read, and we read. So finally, they're like, okay, enough already, I'm out of here. What is it? If they only would have waited a few more minutes, they would have had dinner. And how good is that dinner? It doesn't matter what it is. Is that dinner not after? Because it was worth the wait. That's life. It's worth all the difficulties. It's worth all the hardships. It's worth everything to get dinner. That's the Shabbos. That's the metaphor of Shabbos. That is the metaphor of Shabbos. Six days a week you show work. Now, the seventh day you shall rest. And it's interesting how the Torah says, work six days. Only by working six days can you appreciate Shabbos. I remember as a student, when I was in yeshiva, it was the same thing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's all the same, right? So you're working seven days a week, you're studying. And I never understood, like, who cares? Like, why is everyone making such a big deal about the Shabbos thing? And now, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> it's a whole different experience. So, why do you work seven days a week? I know. It's hypocrisy. <laughs> it's rabbis. They say, don't work on the seventh day. It's the busiest day of the week. <laughs> I don't get them. I don't get those rabbis. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't get these, these people. So, did I, did I light you up enough? Can we go to the next level? Yeah. So we got the essence. I just want to see. We got the essence. Now, <clears throat> let's go to the next stage. 45 on the top. The next stage, the initial concept is worked out. And plans for creation are further developed. Within the mind, the building has taken on some form of independent existence. Something has been created, albeit only in theory. This world is called the world of creation, the world of Bria. The word creation always implies creating something from nothing. That's the implication of creation. 
In our world, when we make a table, we're not creating the table. We're fashioning the table. But we're not creating it. Creating, the idea of creation is something from nothing. The only kind of idea, which is not even everything that we do in this world, but conception is close to it, but everything we do in this world is something from something. But that would still be something from something. Yeah, it is. It is. It is something from something. We don't have anything in our world that's something from nothing. But that is what creation is. When God creates, it's something from nothing. Maybe an illusion looks like it's something from nothing. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a correlation with the, um, with the idea of, 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 of salvation or Yeshua? All of a sudden, out of the blue comes your... There is. There is the idea of creation. That's the, 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 the creation anew. So that's why it's yes. Yeah. But even, but even Teshuvah, same, same source, mm-hmm. right? Return. Teshuva comes from the same source of repentance or return is also something from nothing because out of the blue all of a sudden you say I'm going to return, I'm going to be better it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. and someone said to me, well when is a good time? when is a good time to, be, to, 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 to do that? anytime, because that's what it is, something from nothing all of a sudden you have this spark and say yes here I am, present and here so that's Yeshuva and Teshuva you were saying? yeah, it's all the same source Yeshua, Teshuva in Bria, the initial concept of Atzilut has been broadened, both in length and in depth. The letter He corresponds to the Sephira of Bina, which is predominant in the Sephira of Bria. How do we see that? What do we see? First of all, we already showed that, right, this is the dot here, and the He is just the expansion, the Bina. But how does Bria resemble Bina? Well, Bina takes the initial concept of Chachma and develops it in all its detail. Oh, it's even interesting because it's like it's a dot and then it gives rise to the letter A. That's right. It's a concept and conceptualization. Exactly. Yeah. That it's concept and conceptualization where it, it, the, the dot becomes actualized. The world, the world of Bria takes the initial manifestation of the Sephirot in Atzilut. So it takes the initial form, that little, that little yud, that little boom, that spark of creation, because that's where creation started, is in Atzilut. So Bria takes the creation of Atzilut and creates with them some form of existence, which starts to take on independence. There's some kind of created beings that are in the world of Bria. Some say there are angels there, some say there aren't angels there, but... All in all, there's some kind of created, there's existence there. Created existence, outside of God. Although in Atsilot there's total nullification, bitul, nothing exists independently, what is felt in Bria is also the divine. However, unlike in Atsilot, in Bria there is something outside of God that is feeling him while still, while still being totally nullified. It's for this reason that the world of Bria is called the world of a divine throne, otherwise known as the Kite HaKavot. The divine throne. In essence, a throne... What? Kisei or Kite? Sorry, sorry, Kisei. Okay. Kisei HaKavot. The throne is a chair upon which man lowers his posture, so too the divine throne is the idea of God lowering itself, the divine lowering itself 
to come into contact with the worlds. This lowering of posture takes place in the world of Bria. Huh? What I understand is some Tzadikim and some great Kabbalists have literally witnessed the world of Bria as the throne where God sits. Well, Ezekiel says that. Yeah. Ezekiel refers to it as a throne. And I'm saying it's not just a metaphor, it's like literally well, like this. That's what I'm saying, is, yeah. that when, is that when we say, when we say throne as a, in, in Kabbalah, we really mean throne. When we say king, we really mean king. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, in, in our life, it's so important. It's also in the world of Bria that we find the creation of souls and the highest angels. Angels, malachim, are not white-winged creatures that fly across the sky. Rather, they make be conceived as conduits for divine energy flow. They act as agents through whom energies flow to this world. The angels in the world of Bria are also called seraphim. We say this in our prayers. From the... From the um, from the Hebrew word of fire. These angels are so infused with the feeling that they burn up. This is not to be taken in the literal sense, but that they are so close to God they cannot endure the intensity, and they are in constant state of spiritual ecstasy. The word Bria is also the place of the upper garden of Eden, which is an abode for souls that have merited entering this most sublime realm as a reward for their efforts in this, for their efforts in this world which is what you were referring to. Is that like a hierarchy of angels? There is a hierarchy of angels, starting in the world of Bria. Absolutely. The next stage in the world of Yetzira, the third world, formation. Yetzira means formation. In this world, that finite plans are drawn up for actual creation. Like we said in the building, that the plans, the architect actually gets to work. The predominant sefirot of this world are the six emotional sefirot from Chesed to Yesod. They correspond to the letter Vav. Why? What is Vav in numerology? Six. Six six sefirot. That's where they, that's where, that's the source. Vav is a six sefirot. Basic level. We can go higher. This world is where emotional attachment to the project forms and takes on a momentum of its own. The entire project is no longer merely a concept, and concrete steps are being taken to actualize the idea. Here exists the lower garden of Eden, the abode for souls who merit basking in its divine light. This is the realm of the angels called Chayot HaKodesh, also in our prayers, holy beings. The angels in this world take on names corresponding to the Sephirot. For example, the angel Michael corresponds to the Sephirot Chesed, right? to kindness. Gabriel to Gevura. Raphael, healing to Teferet. What about Uriel? Do you know what Uriel was? We'll talk about him. He's very interesting. When we recite in Kedusha, in the repetition of the Amida, we say Kadosh, Holy three times in reference to the angels of Bria, Yetzirah, and Asiyah, of whom we pay homage to God in their different ways. Because the angels can only pray to God once we pray to God, right? Since the Torah has been given in this world, since the Sinaic experience happened, the angels need to wait for us to pray in order for them to pray. That was the big problem they had with the Torah being given in this world, according to Kabbalah. And uh, these three different worlds, three different levels, three different kinds of angels? 
There are three besides, and the last level is us. But yeah, there are three levels. There are angels in Bria, in Yetzirah, and in Asiya. But is the Hayot than the other one? Yeah. There are different kinds. Are there are different kinds of angels. Serafim, Chayos, HaKodesh, Rash Different levels. We'll go into angels. We're going to go into angels in a few, in, two, in three weeks. He's, he's mentioned, but just because we're, I, I, what I want to do is try to keep in the context of, of, of tradition. So there are many angels, there's hundreds of angels, and we, we know a lot of them by name, but I just wanted to give an example from the prayers using these levels. But there's many angels, and we're going to talk about them in a few weeks. Ezekiel's prophecy was experienced when he entered the world of Yetzirah through meditative techniques. Since he wished to communicate this experience to his people, he had to use human language to describe metaphysical phenomena. In the world of Yetzirah, he describes the following. The angels there in the form of creatures. Below him were the Ofanim, the angels of the world of Asiya. The throne of the world of Bria was above him. Sitting on the throne was the form of a man describing it as the, as, as the Sephirotic array of the world of Atzilot. Isaiah's prophecy entered an even deeper state within the world of Bria, and subsequently his description is much less detailed. Because it's interesting, the, the higher, and you know if you, if you read the book of uh, the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of Yetzirah, you'll see that a lot of the descriptions there are much less detailed because they're deeper, they're more refined, so it's very hard to articulate it. That's one of the biggest problems of Kabbalah teachers in general, is it's very difficult to articulate some of these ideas um, to, to, you know, in general, bring them down. to bring them down. <coughs> the Sefer Yetzirah was attributed to Abraham. Yes, Abraham that's right. According to most opinions, he wrote it. So now, the finally, with the fourth world. The fourth world is called Asiya, and that is our, is our world. Well, not exactly our world, because that is where creation becomes actualized. The divine creative flow from the world of Yetzirah flows through the angels into the creation of the four kingdoms, mineral, vegetable, animal, and human, the predominant sephira of the world of Asiya is Malchut. Malchut suggests sovereignty. The idea of a distant king ruling over willing objects. Asiya is the world in which the creation takes a form of total independence, yet the place where the subjects accept God as king. There's no king without subjects. The world of Asiya is somewhat contradictory. It's always a world of opposites. The master creator who is a supreme artist, has created a most beautiful and diverse creation. It is a creation of God alone, yet God is hidden to the degree that his creations are not aware of their creator. Somehow it is possible in this world to totally deny the presence of God as he completely is concealed. In this total concealment that allows this world to be a realm of free choice where a person can choose to serve or ignore, as well as the realm of challenge, where the hand of God is sometimes overt and at other times covert. This world is the ultimate purpose of creation. It is here, in this world, that God wishes his creatures to create an abode for him. This is achieved through adherence to Torah and mitzvot. In Torah, God has communicated the truth of creation and provided a path through which people can navigate the choppy waters of life. This is accomplished at every stage by attaching themselves to him through mitzvot. In the higher worlds where it's manifest as divine light, 
In reality, there are only manifestations of divine creative ability, mere rays of the sun. However, in this world, where one cannot perceive the light manifest in the higher realms, one can only appreciate atzmut, the essence. We have the ability to go to the highest levels. Now, just so you understand, there are two levels here. There is the spiritual world and the physical world. In, in Asiya. Spiritual world is where our souls are created. The physical world is where we are. So we're all in the same world. We come from this world. Now remember, the Kav, the essence of God, goes right through all. So now, these are like the layers. The layers of the onion. If you can take this pen right here, and if you know how to get to its spiritual source, you can find Atzilut within the pen. It's possible. There is holiness in everything in this world. Everything. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So you said in the world of the Siyah, our soul is created in, at the spiritual level of Asiya, but can we experience Atzilut in our soul? Yes. Yes. See, what happens is like this. Every time we do something that gets us closer to God, do a mitzvah, or we do something that attaches us to God, we take off one layer. And eventually, through refinement, through teshuva, through becoming more refined, we can get... There are people in this world, even in this world today, that have gotten to high spiritual states. Through refinement, through teshuva, through through working on, on, on themselves constantly. And that's part of this process. That's part of the process in this world. So if this is the ultimate world, why this constant rhetoric about the world to come, the world to come? It's not about this world, it's the world to come. It's all we ever hear. Very oh, good. don't worry, there'll be justice in the world to come. So what world are we dealing with? There's a lot of schools of thought. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people. And somehow, I don't know where it happened, but someone decided such as Hanoch did, that this world is corrupted, it's wrong, and that just focus on the world to come. Everything you're going to do is about the world to come. Kabbalah does not believe that. Kabbalah is about being in this world. Making it better. The world to come is really here. Right. Just making it better. That's how it works. Okay, you have to see what resonates with you. You know, that you have to, that's part of your exploration in your life, is to see what's going to resonate with you, because there are a lot of schools of thought. This is one school of thought a little more prevalent in the world than the other. But this is a school of thought that says that heaven is here. Yeah. That our job is to be here in this world, be within this world, but stay above it. Mm -hmm. Be in this world, but not of it. Mm -hmm. But can we bring it together? If, if for example, Asiya is it's very simplifying it to try and explain what I, what I can see. If Asiya is basically the world that we live in and, and the things that we do. So I could say something to him that's not very nice. I could say something to him that's not, I could just do a lot of things. In Yitzhirah, I it's for you you talk about feeling, feeling. So I'm gonna think about why I did this and how that made me feel. And then I could connect, I don't want to say move up, but I think you can move up and down to move up to the next by bringing, you know, looking at the feelings and taking the two opposites. You know, that wasn't really nice, 
but uh, you know, take, taking the opposites, when you let go of one, you let go of the other. Let's say he did something to hurt me, and I'm angry. I have this feeling of anger. I'm in Yitzhira. I'm thinking about why did he do that? Why, why did I react that way? Anger. But the only way I'm going to get rid of my anger is to understand the opposite of anger. Essentially what you're saying. Then I can let go of the anger when I can see that it's not this, not that. I can let go of it. And I thought Briah is the world where, where you've balanced the opposites and therefore you, you can, you can you, you bring them together and the opposite is by letting them go. And you can do that in everyday things. I mean, it's, it's not like, am I totally wrong? Am Essentially I, what you're doing is you're using the world as a metaphor for self-refinement. But on a day for to day, for a, you can use the world as a metaphor, as you can use almost any idea and any concept in Kabbalah as a metaphor. But essentially, what 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 we're talking here is that there are certain there's a certain hierarchy within creation. In order to create this physical world, we had to start off with a tzilut. So you're you're going from down up. Because that's where I am. Right, that's where you are. Up, right? So let's try to go from down up. So I'm in this physical world. And I, now I want to try to become a better person. Now, why should I become a better person? So some people say, I'm going to become a better person because I'm going to get a great front row seat in the world to come. Well, that just doesn't work. It doesn't jive with me. I can't even talk about it. It doesn't jive with me because mm -hmm. I'm here in this world. This is my world. I need to make this world a better place. But, but... It's a, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's such a, a powerful question. You know, it's, it's, it, really, it really comes down to the essence of who we are in this world. Because if you look at our, our, our world today, in self-refinement, it's divided. It's divided between two schools of thought. There's one school of thought, we had it in last week's Torah portion, called the Yaakov school of thought. The Yaakov School of Thought says, study, sit in the yeshivas, sit in the shtetls, keep Judaism to yourselves, make sure to create Babrion community-like atmosphere where everybody is, nobody can get in, nobody could, could dismantle the purity of our souls. Don't look at the outside world because the outside world is wrong. It's bad. What do, they, what do the Amish call it? What do they call it? The name. They call it the devil's playground. The devil's playground. It's a devil's playground. Yeah, that's that's what they call it. That's what the Amish call it. Okay. They, when you know they have a thing with like a bar mitzvah where when they're 16 years old they go into a devil's playground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and they can go. They let them go. Yeah. So. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so and then there's another school of thought, maybe a little more prevalent school of thought, like Esav, a school of thought that says, go out, tikkun olam, make the world a better place. This is Esav? Yes, because Esav was, Esav was a fantastic speaker. He was charismatic, and he was a hunter, and he would go out into the world and, and, and make the world a better place. That was his job. See, a lot of people coin him as this evil man. He wasn't evil. He wasn't evil. He was... He was about the world, where Yaakov was about to study. And it's a great divide in the Jewish community, or I think in the entire world community today, between keeping to yourself, 
keeping to your family, keeping to, to your faith and your tradition, or going out and spreading love and, 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 and goodness. And I think they're both wrong. Or unbalanced? They're both they're unbalanced? Well, I think each one alone won't work. Because you need, to, you need to first be studied. You have to have what it gives to the world. If you can't, if you don't have anything to share with the world, what are you making the world a better place for? Because you decided, EST 1972, that this is the way the world should be? Well, who said that's the right way? So you need to have a code of ethics, a code of morals, a code of rituals that you can use to make the world a better place. I don't mean to make the world a bad place, to make the world a better place. But if you're just making it because this is how you feel today, flavor of the week, this is how you feel the world should be, well, who said the world should be that way? But if you have a, tr a, a, a true standing, standing the test of time, set of morals and guidance that guide you and uplift you and inspire you, then you have what to give to the world. So you need to first be Yaakov and then Esau. And that is why, what, did, what happened when, when Yaakov got the blessing? What does it say? The Torah says, Hakol kol Yaakov, yedayim yedayim Esau. I think about this almost every day. Here's one of my meditations. Hakol, Hakol kol Yaakov, yedayim yedayim Esau. Mm -hmm. Your voice is the voice of Jacob, of Yaakov. But your hands are the hands of Asaph. Our okay, voice. To do stuff. What happened? Yaakov put on the coat of, of, of Asaph and he went in and got the blessing. And that's how he got the blessing because his voice <coughs> spoke the voice of truth. But his hands, his hands were the ones that went out into the world. You take your voice of truth and you go out and make the world a better place. It's like your base of knowing and then doing. That's right. And that's essentially why this world is called the Sia, the world of doing. Because we take our voice of truth and we make this world a better place. We live in a world where action is all that matters. That's it. We can't just have the voice of Jacob. That's not good enough. I was, we were studying before, in my class before, about what true education is. And how Kabbalah describes true education. Education... Ed comes from the word edukara. It's Greek for to convey a message. Whereas in Hebrew, we don't call it education. We call it chinuch, dedication. The Torah says that we model the proper behaviors. That is the way you educate. By doing. Children will never remember what you said. They won't remember what you, what, what they, what they, all what they, what they remember is what they saw. That's it. Not what they said, but what they saw. And that's why this world of Asiya and what we do is so important. You can say one thing. You can say I love you, but if it doesn't transfer into action, it's worthless. There's so many people who are really good at saying I love you. But then when it comes to their actions, something says something else. Actions speak louder than words. Actions are it. And that's what the essence of Asiya is. That is what Kabbalah teaches us in the fourth level, our level. Our level is the level of action, and that's all that matters. What we do matters. So, sorry, I'm 
understanding, maybe not kind of paraphrasing, so there's intention. There's intent, conception, intention, creation, and then that's why God wants a dwelling place in the lower world, which is Asiya, because he wants something that can be held tangibly. Well, our job is to take that all that, that and to go back up. Where we, we're, we're a descent. We've come down to the lowest level to go up to the highest level. And we can. We have that potential to go higher because the world of Yitzhira can only go as high as Yitzhira. They can never go to Priya. The world of Priya can only go to Priya. We have the power and the ability to go as high as we want. From the lower you come, the higher you can go. It's like a fire, fireman's pole. That's what it is. now, but you have to really climb it's so interesting. I was uh, somebody somebody gave me this BBC uh, Human Earth series to watch, and uh, they were doing this uh, this Human Planet, I think it's called the BBC Human Planet. So I was watching one last night with my kids about um, about the, the the jungles, and they had taken this film crew had gone to like this I forgot the name of this tribe in the middle of the Amazon. And they taught them how to make tree houses wow. on the top of like these 90-foot trees, these crazy, like how high. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, the camera crew was saying how they had like brought like all these different regulations and, and things. And like they had one rope and they had a second rope in case that one broke. And they had a third rope in case that one broke. And these guys are just climbing the trees. <laughs> and they're laughing at these camera people. Who are like have all these different things and, and they're up to code and security in the middle of the Amazon. These guys are just climbing up with their bare feet, and they're and, and they were interviewing one of the guys, and one of the guys says, "Yeah, we usually make it to the top." So what I'm understanding, I don't know if it's right, is as you're going up, you're going up in the middle because you've integrated. Sides. That's right. Well, that's what that's what when you you know put this into the into the sefirot and see the balance. That's why where is the kav? It's in the middle. It all boils down. We're going back to last week's class in the sefirot. It all boils down to the middle. What's happening in the middle? Because that's the the middle is the balance of the two sides. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which, but you have to experience both, which is why you said in a relationship, how can you not go to bed angry? As you experience both, then you can come into the middle. Exactly, exactly.